Good morning to you all. Um, it's good to have you with us today, especially if you're new. I've been able to speak to a couple of you, but if uh, I haven't had a chance to greet you, I'll be at the connection table across the hall right after the service. would love to say hi, introduce myself. Um, today is uh, a family worship Sunday. If you're new, you're like, man, there's a lot of kids in this service. And it's, uh, yes, uh, once, about once a quarter, we will um, uh, have the children come into the service. We be a part of the service, gives our volunteers a break. It helps uh, teach the kids uh, about worship and what it means to um, worship uh, together as a church. And then also it helps us as adults to realize that children are not an inconvenience, that children are a blessing from the Lord, and that actually for many years, and in many cultures around the world, children are just constantly a part of uh, the worship gathering. Uh, and so today, if you hear some noises, kids, uh, I know it's going to be hard to sit still and listen to me. Uh, I know um, I get bored at me sometimes, so don't worry. If you, uh, We do have uh, sermon notes pages for kids that are out at the connection table, so if you as a parent want to slip out and go grab those, we have those for the kids. Uh, they can follow along, draw pictures of me, um, whatever they feel, feel like doing. Um, I heard a pastor share recently uh, uh, of an example or a story that, that I think I, I related to and I believe that all of us relate to, uh, and it's definitely happened to me. I've been uh, standing in line at the grocery store, and uh, you know, you're in that aisle, you're waiting, it's not quite your turn, you've got two or three people in front of you, and you're stuck in the little, little aisle thing, right? And on the left side of the aisle, you look, and there's magazines of, um, about fitness, and there's beautiful people, and stars, and uh, you know, the, you know, how to get uh, the arms of, of uh, Liam Hemsworth or, you know, uh, or Chris Hemsworth or, or whatever, and like how to, how to get the six-pack abs of, you know, whoever. And you see these bodies, you're like, wow, that's, that's good. And then over on the right side um, is, are magazines about decadent, delicious food, right? And right below them is a rack of Reese's peanut butter cups and candy bars, and if you're like me in that moment, you look over at the, the rack about healthy people and you're like, I want to be healthy. I want to be strong. I want to have six-pack abs, right? Like, but then on the right, you look over and you go, I love Reese's Peanut Butter Cups and I'm pretty sure God made them on the eighth day, right? Like they, they are amazing and, and I, I can't see them as truly wrong. And so what's happening in us in that moment, it's a very simple example of it, but it's a, it's a, it's a, a tension in desires, it's tension that we experience between two desires. Now, um, that's a simple example, a small example, if you will. Um, but what if we feel torn between, and, and really kind of in that moment, we're torn between what's good for us, but also what we really enjoy that maybe isn't as good for us. But, but what happens when they're more weighty, when we actually feel a tension between doing something that uh, might be hurtful, or actually just straight up right away hurtful to us, or hurtful to other people, or, um, or eventually hurtful to other people, and not, or, or doing something good instead for other people? What if we desire something that uh, maybe is good for us in this moment, but then in, uh, it, it starts us down a track that in 10 years we look back and we regret it and it's created deep soul wounds in our lives? You see, no one in here, and, and no one you'll see today or this week or this year or your entire life for that matter, is a monolithic set of desires. No, you and I have constant conflict of desires. And let's, let's be honest, it's not always between peanut butter and working out, right? A peanut butter, Reese's peanut butter cups and working out. It is sometimes between loving someone or letting them have it, right? <laughs> 
We, we don't always have desires that are between, well, this isn't great for me and this would be really good for me. It is sometimes, this is really bad and wrong and I kind of desire it right now and this is right and good and I kind of desire it too. And I would argue every one of us feels that. Even if you're not a Christian, you don't believe in God at all, you, I, I would guess, very likely, maybe you're the first person I've ever met that doesn't do this, but you've, you've actually desired to do something that is against your own moral character, your own morals that you've, you've, you've set up for yourself. You're like, well, I kind of want to do this in this moment, even though I think this is wrong. And so we are this constant set of desires that are tearing back and forth in us. The question is, why do we exist this way? Why don't we simply desire what is good? Why don't we, why don't we simply desire what is good for us and good for others? And the answer to that is found in our passage today. Uh, we are in a series through Genesis. If you're just joining us, we, we, uh, if you're a first-time guest, we have a Genesis journal for you. We would love to give you. That's what um, Abby uh, read a few moments ago. It, it has the scripture on one side and a journal place on the other side. Um, and if you see people like writing, that's what they're writing in right now. But if, if you're regular, we have one for you, but we'd ask you to give for that, um, but $5. But if you are new, we'd love to give you one just as a, a gift to you today. And what we're looking at in Genesis 3 is called by theologians called the fall of mankind into sin. And just to recap what we learned in Genesis 1 and 2, God made the world and everything in it. And it was good. In fact, it was very good, right? It was a good world. Everything's great. And that lasted right up till the end of chapter 2 in the Bible. Um, so not very long. Uh, but in... in uh, in that creation, what, what we read through the rest of the Bible in the Old Testament as, it's, as uh, writers write back and fill out this picture more, there was something called shalom happening. There was harmony and symmetry to creation. There was a wellness. Everything, think of it as everything was operating exactly like it was supposed to. Everything was in harmony with each other, with the world, all of that. Um, and you can think of it as like the symphony, Boston Symphony. If you've ever been to see them play, you sit back and, you know, you, I, I, I'm in awe of this because I have, you know, just enough musical talent to be dangerous is what I tell people. Uh, one year piano, one year voice, one picked up guitar in college because that's what college guys did. Um, and then played bass in my last church a bit. And so I actually am dangerous around musical instruments, um, but I enjoy good music. And if you're at the symphony, you watch, I mean, I don't even know how many pieces are in the symphony, but it's a lot, right? And you're watching the conductor and everything's operating in this symmetry and harmony. Now, just imagine that happening, but then all of a sudden, everyone starts playing whatever song they wanted to play, right? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes at that moment. They wanted to hold this note a little longer. They wanted to play their favorite song in this moment. How would that sound, Right? It would sound like a modern symphony, which is not music. Um, no. <laughs> Sorry, I don't, enjoy, I don't enjoy some of the modern music, but um, <laughs> symphony music. But it, 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 even if you're not a musician, it like you would just, something would happen to you in that moment, right? You'd realize, oh, there, there's, there's something that's dis, in discord. There's something in disharmony, disunity, and that's exactly what happens in this moment. In Genesis 3, 
It's why we can't find lasting peace and harmony with ourselves. We can't find it with other people. We can't find it in our work. We can't find it in our uh, money or relationships or environment. Uh, it's why your body is broken, why you uh, woke up this morning with a headache or your back hurt or uh, you twisted your ankle the other day and, and not sure you're ever going to recover from it. Um, it's, it's why, things, it's why uh, this world began to unravel. And I realize today, if you are new to church or you're not a Christian, you, you might be like, well, I'm not sure I buy into all this. That's great. I, I actually believe that this is one of the most self-authenticating truths in Scripture, is that the world is broken and that we're broken. And, and I don't believe that a, a purely um, philosophical, naturalistic approach to it can actually explain why we keep doing things <laughs> to hurt ourselves, right? Why we are so bent on hurting ourselves and hurting others along the way. And why we have this constant tension of, of desire in us. And so I encourage you, I do want to encourage you, if you're not a Christian, just to listen along today um, and see if this is something that begins to maybe make sense or frame out some uh, truth for you. So we're going to look at uh, today disordered desires and decreation, God's justice, and a new hope. I couldn't help but using a Star Wars reference there. It's just a good, it's just a good uh, final point title. So um, disordered desires and decreation. Now, if you've read this, I do not have time to unpack all the what would be called apologetics questions for those that might have deep questions about this text. We'll try to post some resources, share some resources. You can always go to the Bible Project YouTube channel. They have a lot of stuff to help frame this stuff out. But one of the questions that I think is very fair is, why in the world would God create a tree, right? Like, the garden's great. Everything's awesome. People are doing their job. Um, and, and God creates a tree that if they eat of it, everything unravels and falls apart. Have you ever had that question? I think it's a legitimate question to ask. Now, there's a couple of reasons, very simple reasons why that exists. One, it was to teach Adam and Eve to trust God and to weave into their lives that trusting and submitting to God's rule actually led to flourishing in life, right? Because if, if something like the tree did not exist, there was no option to trust God. There was simply life. And so there's the, the, the reality of learning to trust God and related to that is that God created Adam and Eve for relationship with himself. And, he re, and, he, and no true relationship can happen without choice, right? You can't, you can't have a relationship with someone, a meaningful, loving, mutual relationship, if they don't have a choice. That's called slavery, right? That's, that's a manipulation. That's control, and so God wanted to create man, man, men and women with volition and the ability to trust him and choose to walk in relationship and loving relationship with him. Because you see, God had already shown them that he loved them. He'd created a wonderful world. He had given them life. He'd put them in the garden and, and blessed them. And now he wanted them to love him and walk in trusting relationship with him. So the tree existed for that. And so if Creation was um, bringing, uh, introducing, or bringing um, order out of chaos. What we see in this chapter is actually decreation. It's the introduction of chaos into order. 
Uh, Genesis 3 opens with Satan entering the garden, or the, what's called the serpent, entering the garden to talk with Eve. Now we know, again, from the rest of scripture and from Jesus, that, that this serpent was, was Satan in a physical form. Um, I, I don't believe he was necessarily a snake or serpent on, on the ground in the same way we understand today. Uh, I think he was maybe some kind of lizard or dragon or something. Um, but he was uh, present. We know from um, the rest of scripture, he was an angel, a fallen angel. He'd rebelled against God. Um, and we understand that he had rebelled prior to this. Prior to this moment, he had already rebelled against God. And he enters into the garden and he begins to talk to Eve. He says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, one of the things that, that happens in this verse that we don't see in our, our English, in, but we can see in the Hebrew, is the end of chapter 2, verse 24, says that the, the man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. Right? They were naked and they were not ashamed. The word ashamed there, or, un, or unashamed, meant innocent and unspoiled. And in the Hebrew, it sounds very similar to the word crafty that's used in the beginning of chapter 3. So Adam and Eve were, were uh, naked, clean, pure, right in front of each other, uh, completely unashamed. But now the crafty, clever, cunning uh, serpent entered. And this character is set up as an antithesis to Adam and Eve. He is, they are innocent. He is crafty. They are pure. He is underhanded. And it begins to intersect. This original temptation centered around doubting began with doubting what God had said. Uh, so the first words out of the enemy's mouth, the serpent's mouth, were, did God actually say? And so he call, he's beginning to call into question what, what Adam and Eve had been taught. Now, what's interesting in this is that um, Eve, when she responds to him, we, we know that God had commanded back in chapter 2 that they weren't to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Um, and Eve knew that. But when she quotes back to him what, what God had said, she actually adds to it. This is what she says. You will not surely die, for God knows, or he says, you will not sure, sorry, let me go back. Eve misquoted what God had said and said, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So he says, we shouldn't eat of the tree, neither should we touch it lest we die. So what Eve is doing in this moment is beginning to add to God's word. She's, she's uh, somehow, I don't know why, we don't understand, ramping up what God had said about this tree. Um, and God had never said that. He didn't say they couldn't stand next to the tree. He didn't say they couldn't take the fruit and play ball with it. He didn't say they couldn't stand around it, stand near it, set up a tent next to it. He never said any of that. He said, do not eat of the tree. And yet Eve added. So when Eve added that, the serpent knew that she had already begun to change God's word. So he twists it, and this is what he says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Let me paraphrase this for us. Sin won't hurt you. Sin is freedom. It will free you up to do what you want to do. God's trying to keep you from doing what you want to do. He's keeping you from living your best life. You need to watch out for you. You need to watch out for number one. If you don't do that, who's going to do that, right? Sin is freeing. You should be able to call the shots for your life. So Adam and Eve believed Satan's lie because they desired to sin and saw that it was good. 
We'll see this in just a second, but listen for the phrase, how she describes um, what she saw in the tree as good is in contrast to creation, exact same word in the Hebrew, being very good. So God had defined good. Good is creation and human beings and symmetry and harmony and shalom. But she is now redefining what is good. Listen to what she says. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her dumb husband who was with her and he ate. I'm telling you, Adam was the first passive husband. You thought your husband might be a little passive. This is, we, we, get it, we get it well. Like one of the default settings for husbands is passivity. It can happen, all right? I'm just saying it. I'm owning it. Husbands can get passive. Well, here we go. He's standing there. We know this. He's actually standing there while his wife is talking to the enemy. He doesn't correct her. He doesn't go, hey, honey, you know, that's not quite the way God said it. We probably shouldn't be talking to this guy. He's trying to tempt us to do bad things. He just stands there. And, nobody, and I don't know why. I don't know what he was doing. I mean, she was naked. But, like, I don't, nobody knows. But he was standing there, and he let his wife talk to the enemy, eat the fruit, and go, hey, you should have some. And he said, okay, sounds good, and just ate it up. This is not a good example of a husband, by the way, um, or a wife, for that matter, <laughs> But what you see here is mankind rejecting being made in the image of God and instead wanting to choose to create our own identity. You see, it wasn't enough for us to be made in the likeness of God. We wanted to be God-like. We wanted to make our bid for independence. And this is a process here of what she did, and it still happens in my life and your life today. She, uh, the enemy sought to um, get her to doubt what God had said. So did God really say? And this is what you and I, when we desire to do something that's wrong, at times we'll rationalize ourselves. Did God say to really love my neighbor like myself? Because she's a terrible person. And I'm pretty sure God wants me to be happy. And I would not be happy loving her. See that? I just twisted that. I'm questioning, did God say it? She began, then we see Eve beginning to substitute her authority for God's authority. We do this, right? Eve thought, I have the right to do what I want. I'm capable of making my own decisions. You see, God had set up creation with him as king, ruling over creation. But Eve said, no, I can be king too. I can rule myself. One simple question about this. And, you, and again, just thinking about this as objectively as we can, what happens when we have a society full of people who set themselves up as kings? I will do what is right in my own eyes. It's called Lord of the Flies. If you never read that children's book, I don't know why that was a children's book. Was, it gave me nightmares when I was in high school. It's one of the few books I read in high school. But um, it was... It, it, does anybody just stop and look at it just honestly? Does that look like human flourishing? No. But it begins with doubting what God has said, substituting our own authority, and then thirdly, believing a lie about God or his word. This is when we twist God's word to give permission to do what we want. Listen, you name a clear sin in scripture. Just name one. Like traditionally, historically, Universally accepted in the history of the Christian church 
and I can point you to three or four PhDs that will help you to believe that that's not what the Bible actually says. There will be always be people who want to twist the way scripture, what scripture says. And then finally, what we see here, and this is just really stark, but saying something is good that God has said is not good. God has said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree. Creation's good. Go do whatever you want in creation. It's your playground. Go enjoy it. You have Disneyland. Go do that. But don't go to the cotton candy machine, right? It's not good for you. <laughs> and, and it's going to cause some problems if you do it. You have the entire Disneyland. That is good. And all of a sudden, Eve's going, no, I want to go over here. Let's eat this. It's declaring something good that God has said is not good. People today believe God's parameters around sex are not good. It's good. What's been defined as good now is for everyone to be sexually satisfied in whatever way or whenever, however they feel. The parameters around sex are arbitrary. They're outdated. So we see people giving themselves over to the internet, to sex with whoever, whenever, however. Somehow believing that the only thing that is not good is to say no to a desire in your heart. To say no or restrain any desire you have. This is new, by the way. This is new, at least in the West, for the last 2,000 years. Uh, we've been dominated by the understanding of the self and desires by uh, St. Augustine. Augustine believed, and if you want to understand his, how he thought about this, his book Confessions is actually a really good 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 source on this where he began to come to the point of examining and regulating his own own desires realizing his own desires were his own worst enemy so he he what what came to be common in our in in our way of thinking our philosophical understanding of our desires was that uh we need to weigh our desires we need to look at them and evaluate them is, is this a good desire? Is it a bad desire? Is this desire going to ultimately uh, help or hurt? Is it going to hurt me? Is it going to hurt others? Is it going to flourish? Does this lead to flourishing for me? How does it weigh against God and what God has said and what mor- morals are? And, he's, and he taught that, that we need to examine and regulate our desires before acting on them. This was, for many, millenn- a couple of millennia, a definition of maturity, was self-control and self-discipline, self-regulation. Not a call, not to simply give in to our desires, but to examine our desires, to consider our desires, to evaluate our desires before we act on them. Now, enter Freud. Now, Freud's been largely debunked, but there's one thing that Freud taught that has become popular in our culture, even though it's largely been debunked, and that is the idea um, that any uh, that that any repression of a desire creates neurosis, right? And that, in fact, uh, any external uh, attempt to control your desires is oppression, uh, and any in- internal controls over your desires is repression. Therefore, you should act on your desires. It's who you are. And we are taught in our culture today that your desires are who you are. We're raised in a culture that's suspicious of any outside authority, and that freedom, the very idea of freedom in our culture means free to do whatever I want. But, there, but we, we got to understand, if we step back just a little bit, we recognize that not everything we want is good. And I would argue this, it, we, we say act on your desires, but we just agreed we are not a monolithic group of desires. Which desire? Desire to work out and get six-pack abs or desire to eat Reese's peanut butter cups? 
Which desire should I act on? That's a small example. That's not going to wreck your life. Well, it might wreck your life. You eat Reese's peanut butter cups every day. But, but what happens when it's larger? What happens when you say, you know what, my marriage is not really going the way that I want. I really desire to find someone that will fulfill me and get me and understand me. Someone who will love me for me. Should you act on that desire? Because our culture would say yes. There's no framework. No, no, you should not do that. We have rejected the idea of desires in and of themselves having any morality at all. And this all goes back to the garden. Listen, we were meant for freedom. We were. We were meant, we were created to live free. But freedom uh, does not mean free to do everything. Freedom, uh, freedom from all constraints is not freedom at all, is it? I can't be free to enjoy the blessings of, of a rich marriage after 28 years and be free to, to hook up with whoever I want to at the same time, can I? All good, meaningful freedom in life means saying no to some things for the sake of other things. And this is a lie that our culture has fed us and is still feeding us, that freedom can be mean all you want it to be. So we have disordered desires that led to decreation, and, and we're living that out right now. And we see in this passage that God's justice is revealed. At the very moment of sin, there was something that happened. God had not even engaged them yet, right? And, and the way the text describes what happens, there's an inherent awareness. Maybe it's like the, um, maybe it's the member of the symphony orchestra that all of a sudden the horn starts playing in a different key than what it's supposed to or something. And they're like, all of a sudden realize something's out of whack, right? Something is not working the way it's supposed to. They felt God's justice even before God's justice came to them. Look at verse seven and eight. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and then they heard this, and, then, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. There's so much here. Um, but sin, let's just, uh, simply as I can put it, sin makes you dumb. Let's, we'll, we'll hide behind these trees from the God who made us and the trees and everything. They knew that better than we do. And yet they were like, we'll hide over here. He won't see us. <laughs> and so this is the decreation and decreation, the unraveling uh, what we see here in God's justice serving as we experience four things, guilt, shame, fear, and blame. Guilt enters in. Adam and Eve had rejected God and his command by eating the forbidden fruit. They stood guilty before him. And the, even though he wasn't there, there was a sense of guilt. Guilt is pain associated with something that you have done. You feel this, hopefully. Hopefully you feel some guilt when you have hurt someone, intentionally. If you've blown up at your roommate or your uh, a coworker or your kid or your wife, your husband, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, you've blown up at them and you kind of calm down later, if you don't feel some sort of sense of that wasn't right, you probably need some help, right? There's a, we're, there's a nagging sense of guilt that we have. That's not a bad thing. No, that's how pathological murderers go, you know, are created when they feel no guilt, 
They don't even register. We feel guilt. We see shame showing up here. Adam and Eve also sensed something was wrong with them. They were sinful now before a holy God. Shame is the pain associated with who you are. So guilt is about what you've done. Shame is about feeling who you are. Jean-Paul Sartre, the famous atheist, said that inside every human heart, whether they believe God or not, is a voice whispering, not acceptable, condemned. It hinders our relationships with others because shame makes us feel like if other people really knew us, if you really knew me, knew me really, really me, you might reject me. You might not like me. You might not accept me. You might not love me. And so shame enters in. Then fear entered in. They soon heard God walking in the garden and, they, and, and he called out, where are you, Adam and Eve? Now, listen, I know you're like, well, I thought God knew everything. Well, yes, but this is the moment where, where um, you know, a parent walks into the room and there's crayon markers on the wall and you're pretty sure as a mom that your husband didn't do it. And you have one other person in the household and it's, you know, he's a three-year-old and you call out to him. You know he's in his room. But you call out to him, you know, Jimmy, come in here. Where are you, Jimmy? You know, you know where he is. You're calling to him to let him know you know where he is, right? (laughs) And how do they respond? Instead of drawing near to God, they hide. Fear is an anxious anticipation of something perceived to be threatening or dangerous. And fear is, before God, is an anxiety that we have rejected him we have turned against him and so there's there's a rightful fear if you've committed treason against the united states and you have to go uh before the supreme court and you don't feel any fear that's probably not healthy right having some sense of oh gosh i gotta stand before the supreme court on this and then we see blame showing up (laughs) this is as soon as God called Adam and Eve out, what happens? Adam, Adam says, you know, God, I blew it. I really messed up here. It was me. It was all me. I, I should have said something. I didn't say something. No, what did he say? He doesn't even say it was Eve. He says, the woman that you gave me, she is defective. I didn't make her. You're the one that made her. I don't know if we have a return policy on this or not, but she misled me. Blame, right? My, uh, my parents are here today uh, visiting. I, my mom used to say I, I could come up with a billion excuses why something happened. I'd blame the circumstances. I'd blame other people. I'd blame my sister. Even though my sister was a good little girl. I'd blame her. Uh, you know, I came up with every excuse. How often when your boss comes down to you, somebody comes down and your spouse accuses you, your friend calls you out over something, how quick are you to go, you know what? You're right. You know, there were other things going on, but when it comes down to it, I just chose in that moment to do that. What do we do? We blame the circumstances. We blame other people. Listen, I, this is an excursus. Let me pause on this real quick. I don't, I don't know how everyone feels about the historicity of this text. I, I believe it's historically true. Um, I have lots of reasons for that. I don't have time to go into it. But one of the things that, that makes it so true is how incredibly accurate it's describing you and me. 3,500 years ago, this was written, and it's like it read your email or my email, right? Like, it knows me. 
I just, I mean, I'm, re- I'm preparing the sermon. I'm like, yep, that's me. Yep, I do that too. Wow, yep. One after another. I think this text speaks to us on a deep level, if we'll let it. So the, the, the response here to Adam and, or Adam and Eve um, sinning against God was at its core injustice against God. I know we talk about a lot about injustice in our culture, but um, and, and, I, and, and whatever radar we have about that is based on a fundamental idea of right and wrong, right? It's, it's based on what's good and what's not good. And, and we have that because we're made in the image of God, by the way. But sin is fundamentally injustice against God. God has only done good for us. And we choose to rebel against him. It's injustice. God does not deserve that. And some people want to see God as a kindly grandfather who winks when we steal money out of his wallet. Right? I, I get that question. Well, this seems like a major overreaction if he's the omnipotent God of the universe, like a couple of people eating fruit. Seriously, Bland? Right? I get that. But, but the, the people who tell me that, it's because they're missing two things. They're not seeing God for who he is, and they're not seeing them sin for what it is. Because if you see God for who he is, and understanding the very breath in your lungs in this moment is borrowed from him. You are utterly dependent in everything on him. No, he's glad to give life. But sin is rebelling against him. It's, it's more like, it's not like stealing money from your grandfather. It's like going down to uh, Beacon Hill, somehow getting past the state police officers that guard the governor's office. You get into the governor's office and you plop down on his chair and you say, I'm the new governor. Now, what's that called? Treason, (laughs) right? You are setting yourself up as an alternate ruler over a rightful ruler. Now, how do they treat that? Does he walk in and go, hey, buddy, don't worry about it. Can you help this guy just out the door here? It's no big deal. Don't worry about it. No problem. And what if you persistently do that? No, they don't treat that that way. You're going to go be visited by men in uniforms. They're going to take you to a nice padded room, cell. You know, they're going to figure out if you're mentally stable or you're just an angry citizen. And they're going to lock you away because you've committed treason against the governor. How much more so against the God of the universe? When we make a bid for independence. So God then judges them in a very clear way. Uh, and Eve, he tells, tells her in verse, well, sorry, before Eve, he, he casts the serpent onto the ground, says you will crawl, basically saying, no creature will be below you. Um, and then to the woman, verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children, you desire, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, ladies that have had kids, you know this is true, right? There are I know men, we have colds, and we're like, this must be like child pain, childbearing. But, um, you know, women are, women, are, women are made, their bodies are made to carry a child, deliver a child. And it's painful from what I understand. I do not, not interested in experiencing that pain. Would not uh, try that pain out if there was a machine that allowed me to try that pain. Would not do that uh, voluntarily. <laughs> um, it's painful, right? And that pain is rooted in the fall. Now, listen. In the cultural mandate that God gave to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, women could do one thing that men could not do in this whole process. What was that? Carry a child. Deliver that child. Feed that child. And so out of that, 
the very, uh, a, a very fundamental part of her aspect of, of uh, the cultural mandate was now cursed. The part of the man related to that of like uh, caring and providing for his pregnant wife and the new baby and, and his work in the soil was cursed as well. Then remember, this was an agrarian society. And so for us now today, men and women, work is cursed. Everything doesn't work properly. I know this sounds crazy, but there was a time where work was not so much work. And he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, removing access to the tree of life. No, you don't get to be broken, live in rebellion, and enjoy the eternal tree of life. Imagine, imagine that. Imagine we as broken human beings living forever. Is that going to lead to a lot of flourishing? No. Imagine Hitler with the tree of life, right? It's not going to lead to flourishing. Evil would flourish. And so we see this moment, and, and it feels dark, but, but this is our last point here, is a new hope. There is a new hope in this moment. Now, Adam and Eve realized that God's justice, and they sowed fig leaves together. This was their attempt to deal with the reality of what they were experiencing, the guilt, the shame, and the fear. And since that moment, every child of Adam and Eve, every uh, offspring has felt that brokenness in their lives. That's why you don't have to teach a small child to lie, right? They, they come up with it on their own. You don't have to steal, you don't have to teach a small child to be selfish and to grab the remote control from their sibling, right? And punch them in the process, right? You don't teach that. They learn that. They have the ability to do that. And the worst ones are the really nice kids, good kids who are super underhanded, right? Behind the scenes, they're like, oh, I'm manipulating mommy and daddy to do what I want to do, right? Like that's, that's all, that, that, because some of you were those kids. You were like, oh, I followed all the rules, but they didn't know about the ones I broke, right? <laughs> and, so we, and so we're alienated from ourselves and we try to answer this brokenness by simply doing better. We do. We try to, to commend ourselves back to God. How many of, the, of us across this room, just to be honest, feel like if we could st- stop a habit or two or start a good habit or two, we would really be in good shape in a year or two. Like if we just could do, fix these things and get this kind of straightened out that we would be, we'd be doing all right. I see some heads nodding. We should all nod our heads. You, you feel it. You're like, oh, if I could just stop doing this or start doing this. We want to commend ourselves to God. I bet 10 years ago, you're, you thought you were going to have it together by now. How's that going? <laughs> uh, we look to other people to fulfill us. Somehow we believe that the right person, especially in our culture, the romantic right person, what are they? They are our soul mates, right? They're going to fill that part of me that's longing and needing. Listen, I mean, it is so over-romanticized in movies and idealized in our culture it is, listen, husbands are terrible saviors, terrible saviors, right? And wives are terrible saviors. And ma- majority of, 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 of really broken, unhealthy marriages that I have dealt with over the years, to one degree or another, it's been about placing these kinds of expectations on the other person. They're going to satisfy something deep inside of me. They can't. They didn't create the problem, Right? 
when we look to each other, we look to the world, we look to our job and achievement to fill the cracks and crevices of our heart, that, that dream job that will usher in utopia. We think that somehow enough money or security or status uh, will never cause us to doubt ourselves again. If we reach a certain level of achievement, if we've done this or that, somehow, somehow we're approved, right? And I say this, just to, just to be honest, um, it is so sinister, that aspect of looking to something you do to create healing and wholeness and wellness in you is, is present even for pastors. It's present even for me. You know what my temptation is? Be vulnerable now, I don't like it, but I'm going to tell you. My temptation is to put my identity and my sense of success and approval in the church. <gasps> you know, I know you're all shocked, but I'm not perfect. <laughs> But how evil in some ways is that, isn't it? Like I realize like, oh, that's ugly. I take the thing God has called me to do, to given me a stewardship over and I go, oh, approve me, make me feel whole, make me feel like I'm worth something. We do it, we all do it. And then the final thing we look to is religion. Listen, Adam and Eve making fig leaves, listen, was an attempt to cover and to mitigate their own shame and sin before God. It was the first religion. It's called fig leaving, right? One ritual, one rule, wear fig leaves to cover, right? Because if you cover it, it's not there. You can't see it. Let me deal with my shame by covering it. All of us have done this in our hearts and lives. And it's because we're haunted by what J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, called the echo of Eden that is in our hearts, that we know we were made for something. We were made for something that we're not experiencing today. And so we look to everything around us except to God. And this passage is weighty and heavy, but I wanted you to hear there is such beautiful hope here in this passage. God could have left us to ourselves. We'd rejected him, run headlong into sin, and we deserve to be cast off forever, but he doesn't. He doesn't. I didn't see it for a long time, but there's grace and hope in this passage. The first is that we actually see Christ promised here in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's talking to the serpent here. And he's saying that one day, one of the offspring of Eve will crush the serpent's head. And he guesses who that offspring might be. <laughs> the one, one will come who will crush the power of the serpent, will crush the power of the enemy, which is our guilt and shame before God. This is what theologians call the proto-gospel, the first gospel in the Bible. And it's the central reason why Jesus came as a man. You see, Jesus is pictured in the New Testament as the new and better Adam. And this Adam also had a garden. On the final night he was on earth, he was in a garden, wasn't he? And he had a temptation that was greater than any of us have ever experienced. And yet he was faithful. Even in the face of death. This is, the ad, this is the new Adam that was promised here by Jesus, but he's also pictured here in verse 21. Verse 21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. 
This is the only, this is the first thing that God made since He had created the world. This end of the sixth day, no more God made until this passage. How do you get animal skins? There has to be a sacrifice. Life has to be given to cover sin and shame. And so God doesn't say, you what, you guys did a good job with those figs, fig leaves, keep those going. I think if you can build a pattern, maybe a design that would look nice, you know. What does he do? He doesn't leave it to them. He says, no, I will provide the covering for your sin. So Christ is pictured here that his sin comes and covers our sin. Now this message, I realize, can feel like like bad news. And it is, don't get me wrong, it's pretty bad. But, but the gospel is not okay news for those who are doing okay. The gospel literally in the Greek means good news. And for good news to land the way it's supposed to, it's got to land in dark places, doesn't it? For good news to be truly good, it's got to land in a dark place. And this is the dark place. Listen, if you're a billionaire and you play the lottery one day and you win a million dollars, like, oh, that's cute. I'll spend that next week on something, right? But if you are destitute, unemployed, getting ready to be evicted out of your apartment and you win a million dollar lottery ticket, it lands different, doesn't it? And so today, I, the point is not to make you feel bad. The point is to help you to see yourself and out of that, you begin to see how incredibly glorious and amazing a God we serve that he sent his son to die for you, specifically you, not just generally his people, but for you. He loves you. He sees you. He sees your shame. He sees all that stuff you dragged in the door with you today that you're carrying around, your inadequacies, your fears, your shame. He sees all of that. And he says, I've done something about it through my son. Don't, don't hide. Don't hide. Come. Come to me. And as a Christian, if you're a Christian, this is a thing you keep doing over and over again. Not that you become a Christian, but that you experience this over and over again. A refreshing, a renewal, a seeing of who God is, of who you are and what Jesus has done for you. The Puritan Richard Sibbs uh, said, thank God there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. More mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And so today, the invitation is for all of us to lay that down, to turn away from it and to, to embrace the gift of life, to embrace the gift of freedom, of living free from guilt, free from shame, free from being torn by your desires all the time. And for some of you, today might be a step of baptism. Baptism is the initiation right into the family of God. It is the, it is the sign of the new birth. That's why Jesus used the language of being born again, of experiencing a new life, being born by the Spirit, not by the flesh, but by the Spirit into God's kingdom, into his family. And so baptism is the response to that. Maybe today you just need prayer. You're just carrying something heavy. Listen, sin can be what we did, but also sin that's done to us creates a deep soul level wound that does not go away quickly. But Jesus can help with that. We have a prayer team. We'll have folks over here by the window. 
uh, the rest of the service to pray with you if there's anything we can pray for you about. We're going to go ahead and stand. Uh, Go ahead and stand up. Uh, We're going to move into a time of communion and response and singing together. Um, And I want you to think about think about the good news today that this is this is not bad news you're never meant to just sit in this guilt the only reason to point out guilt is because God's done something about it for you today are you willing to embrace that are you willing to turn away from your sin and fully embrace Christ today in a new and fresh way communion is the reminder of that if you're a Christian it's the reminder that Jesus has done everything don't take communion and a bad news, like with bad news. Take it with joy. You have been forgiven. Your king has died for you and brought you into his kingdom. Communion is with joy. If you're not a Christian or not sure where you stand with him today, we'd ask you to not take communion. You can sing, you can stay where you are, you can have someone pray with you, you can mark on your connection card and we'll follow up with you. Um, Anytime over this next song, if you make your way to the front, if you're a Christian and kind of go out the side door, we have to take communion outside in the hallway because no food or drinks allowed in here. Um, and you can take communion out there and make your way in the back door. Let's pray together. Jesus, what was it like for you to see the garden, to see as the son of God, Adam and Eve, taking this step? Jesus, you must have known in that moment you would die. It's said in the word that before the foundation of the world, you knew that you would come to die. And so even in that moment, your compassion, your mercy was beginning to rule and reign. We thank you for the promise and the hope that was pictured here, but also for the reality. God, we're not wondering about the about this atonement, this forgiveness, it has happened, it has been done, it is finished once and for all. And all is left for us today, Jesus, is to believe in you, to look to you, to trust you, to turn away from our sin and cling to you. Help us to do that now. We need it. In your name we pray.